a jam-packed episode with a great interview and some more content coming at you now here on the Indie Ball Report Podcast. All right, back again, episode number 56, a widely waited for episode, one that will have the president and general manager of the Long Island Ducks, Michael Pfaff, on, but that comes up in a little bit from now. That that will probably be thrown into the back part of this episode, along with a discussion about that episode. First, we're going to get to some other content that is in the show this week. And that is mainly the big news that the Frontier League, as well as the United Shore League, has postponed the start of their season. The Frontier League, originally scheduled to start on May 14th, that will be postponed now to an indefinite date, as well as the tryout and draft that was supposed to be at the end of the month, the 17th and, or not 17th, the 27th and 28th of April. Those are now also postponed indefinitely. Um, they're monitoring the situation, and that's to be expected at this time. So, not much to really be said about that. Right. I mean, you know, it's just one of those things where this is something that we're going to see over and over again. Unfortunately, until this clears up, until we're able to really get uh, a good handle on this, uh, our government is able to get a good handle on this, and our society is able to move forward, we're going to see this again and again. And we've been talking about it for weeks now that. It's just, it's a difficult time, and these leagues, unfortunately, had to make the move uh, to postpone. Hopefully, it is just a postponement, it's just a delay, uh, and there will be baseball uh, shortly, but it's hard to predict the future right now. The water, waters are ever murky. However, uh, Michael Pfaff does talk about that a little bit in the interview, which is uh, very interesting as well. Yeah, you know, He says a lot of things that are going to be very intriguing about that, but... What uh, the main problem here is going to be a lot for a lot of these teams is well they just have to have the gate revenue. Um, there's no way around that. It's just a fact. And when you don't have that, it becomes untenable to play. So it's not like you just throw up a web stream or a TV broadcast of the uh, of all these games and stuff. You need to have people in the building, otherwise it's just not financially viable. So it it's going to be a definite challenge for them moving forward at least on the Frontier League side. Now, the American Association still is holding firm that they are going to start play on May 19th. They have not shifted off of that. Now, I don't see any way that's going to be possible, being that they have several states that are under, well, a stay-at-home order and right. under a state, state emergency. So I just can't see you starting without those teams. I mean, you're going to lose a handful of them. And, well, granted, they have a handful of teams that are in states that still refuse to issue a stay-at-home order for whatever reason. That's it's coming. It's a matter of time before that happens. And the sooner the better, because then at least you can get it under control easier. If you wait till the fire is on you, it's a lot more difficult to put out than, you know, getting everything damp first. Right, absolutely. And I think that's really going to be going to be the issue for the American Association is that right now they've not taken any of these precautionary steps. And I think that's going to be something that comes back and bites them a little bit. I mean, you need to take the precautionary steps. You need to cancel now. Uh, you know, it's better earlier than later. <clears throat> the later we get, the closer we get to the season, the closer it's going to be to logistically having issues. And it's just not something that's tenable. I mean, we're already in April and they're trying to play it off as if 
they're going to still play in a month, you know, a little bit over a month. I mean, it's just not going to happen. There's so much preparation that goes into that, too, that, I mean, you could be putting people at risk by just doing some of the things that are tangential early on preparation that you could, you know, usually take for granted. But, you know, it's, again, one of those things where the American Association needs to look at the facts and the reality of the situation that this is not going away anytime soon uh, and make the move that the Frontier League did. It's a it's a smart move, and it's what you have to do at this point until we're you know able to get, as you said, until you're able to get a handle on it. And I think another good point that you made is, look, the stay-at-home order is going to be in place at some point, whether you like it or not. I mean, that's just the way it's going to be, given everything that we've seen anyway um, from our area. I mean, you would imagine it would continue to spread across the country, even as we start to hit the apex um, other communities are just starting to get cases so i mean it's going to be a difficult situation obviously and i think the american association needs to kind of speed up the process a little bit here yeah no definitely it's something that's going to be an issue i mean just getting like you were saying getting people there just getting players in there and there's going to be a handful of guys that are going to say for the pittance i'm making i'm not going to risk my health to go play independent league baseball for maybe a month before they say you got to shut it down because a lot of people that run these things too they're going to be deemed non-essential so it's not going to be you know going on for a while and there's only so much i could put on the american association though because i do understand their perspective of you really want to wait until you're given no other choice to suspend sure. it. but yeah. at the same time the writing's on the wall and it is. i mean it's a matter of time before you have those other states that some of your teams are located in go, you know, stay at home order, don't. I mean, right now, I can't imagine there's too many teams that are in that position where they could still host things. And if you already right. had to cancel a lot of your tryout camps and whatnot, it makes filling out the rest of the rosters really difficult, too. So, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of difficulties here associated with that. And absolutely, you know, it's just going to be a problem here. But I mean, I saw today that they're saying that possibly there won't be crowds and sporting events until end of August. And that, yeah. if that's the I case, that. yeah, if that's the case, then it, there's there's no way there anybody's playing a season this year. It's just going to no. be a lost year. It's, it's as simple as that. So right. you'd have to hope that this gets under control and that something gets done about it in the areas that haven't been affected yet, that there are precautionary measures taken by both the private entities and both the state governments to say, okay, this is serious. Because at this point, I really don't know if you have an issue to stay at home order and you're not in the process of shutting your state down, what more evidence you need to see. I mean, it, right. you know, and would you rather be proactive about this, get it done with early on, get it over with, uh, and then kind of go into this with a, a new perspective, a fresh perspective, uh, and and having these precautions in place, it might help you to get back out and do everything economically that everyone everyone wants to do. Nobody wants to be under these stay-at-home orders, but if you're going to protect your population, you need to do it. And I think if you do it proactively, maybe then you won't have to wait as long on the back end to let people out of that stay-at-home order. Absolutely, it's just it you need to you need to do the step, you need to do the work first. And I mean, like I was like I was saying. I don't know what more you need to see to have to issue the stay-at-home orders and all of these precautionary measures. I mean, all you need to do is lick over at New Jersey and New York, and it's a bloodbath right now. There's no 
there's no end in sight. And like you're saying, we're just about at the apex right now. New Jersey's about a week and a half out. New York's supposedly going to peak this week or over the next 10 days. And if we are only entering the peak now with the amount of sick and dying that we have with the shortages of supplies and everything we have, I don't really, I don't know how any other state that hasn't been hit this hard yet can't be seeing the storm on the horizon. I understand like New York and New Jersey, it's a very, very, very densely populated area. So it would spread a lot quicker than the state like, say, North Dakota doesn't have that population density. But at the same time, it's coming. It's going to devastate you and it's it's going to take a toll. So I understand why you don't want to do it. Like you're saying, nobody wants to do this in an ideal world. Right now, we'd be, you know, talking about the interview, not talking about this stuff, recapping all the March Madness stuff, and then saying how next week we're going to start doing our team previews for the week for the year. Yeah, but that that's sure. not the case we're in. That's, nope. it's just not the world we're going to live in for a while. So you know, you, you got to adapt to it. But. Yeah, absolutely, you got to adapt. And the last thing I'll say on it is that it's very important that you follow these orders because hopefully, if you everybody follows them, then uh, those more of a chance that we can sooner rather than later be at least some of these more stringent restrictions be released and people be able to go out uh, again <laughs> and uh, you know not have to watch uh, Tiger King on a loop for uh, eight hours straight yeah and then just quickly touching on the US uh, on the United Shore League rather mm-hmm. uh, they are pushing their May 8th start date back they're targeting May 29th uh, that is a league that's based out of Michigan so I don't know how bad Michigan's been hit. I assume not nearly as bad as, you know, the general tri-state area has. So I don't know if that May 29th date is realistic or not. Hopefully it is. I do know all the teams in that league, I believe there's four of them, they all play in the same exact ballpark. So it does make make scheduling a little bit more uh, flexible. In the meanwhile, they have said they're putting in hand sanitizing stations. They're going to increase ballpark washings and power washings. So hopefully... That those measures that are being taken will help stem any flow there, or at least ease people's concerns in that league. And hopefully they do make the Memorial Day start date, even though I got a feeling that's going to get pushed back again. So, I mean, I could, I could only, you could only hope, we can only hope at this point. I mean, it's, it's so hard to kind of gather all the facts about this. It's not, as again, it's such a fluid situation that May 29th, could very well be, for some portions of the country, uh, a date where people are kind of getting out. I don't know if they'll be back in in huge swarms like a ballpark again, but, I mean, certainly people could be getting out by May 29th. It's not feasible. It's not unfeasible to think that. However, again, like you said, it's hard to think. It's hard to know. Hard to predict. And the most we could do is hope that this is how it goes. Exactly. And then... uh... Just really quickly here, there are a couple of donation drives for medical supplies. Uh, I'm just not mentioning the Atlantic League ones. I'm sure there's a couple others going across the, the other leagues. I think Gary South Shore was doing something, and also Sioux Falls was doing something with the uh, Salvation Army. However, with Somerset and Sugarland, if you have like masks, uh, gowns, eye protection, hand sanitizer, liquid soap, anything that could be used for sanitation... Uh, if you bring them to either the Sugarland or the Somerset ballparks, they are donating them to local hospitals. I know for Somerset, that was uh, the Robert Wood Johnson one that's over by them. And, uh, right. mm-hmm. and for Somerset's donation, that's from 10 to 2 in the morning. Sugarland, I don't know the exact hospital. 
Both of those links are going to be in our show notes, so you can check those out. Sugarland's donation hours are from 10 to 4, and both of those are at their respective ballparks. So if you're in the area and you have supplies that you can donate, send it to the front line there. That is the hospitals. I mean, they're run from what we see on the news and stuff there. They're just straight up out of supplies. There's just no yep. other way around that. And then when they run out of supplies, that means, well, the doctors and the nurses get sick. And when they get sick, that's even less people to, you know, help fight this disease. And then you're just, it's a snowball effect and it's just going to get worse. So, you know. Right. Absolutely. And it's important to, to donate that if you can, uh, if you have the ability to do so, uh, you certainly should. And, um, you know, we could, the only thing to, to do right now is try to help everybody support those healthcare workers that are on the front lines, uh, social workers, everyone that's on the front lines trying to battle these type of things, um, whether it's the, the medical side of it or the, the mental side of it. So I certainly uh, take my hat off to them. I, th- I think I can speak for both of us in that regard and uh, just hope that everybody is able to donate as much as they can to a very, very important cause at this point. Yep, 100% there. So now we're going to just move right into our interview with Michael Pfaff. Uh, we're going to preface it a little bit here, like we do with all our interviews, then we'll run it. I found this to be probably, in no disrespect to our other guests and the ones we have scheduled, but this has probably been the best interview we've had yet. It, we really gleaned a lot from it. I think he addressed a lot of the central questions we had coming into it. And quite frankly, he gave us a, a nice inner working, the whole General Ducks organization, and just, we say that they're first class, but we don't really know how they are, and he explained that greatly, and he just reaffirmed everyone's knowledge that they are, in fact, a a top-class organization. Yes, certainly. I think that really was apparent throughout. Also, what came out was just this very interesting idea that the Atlantic League is separated based upon the contractual side of things. The contractual side of things is so important to independent league players the flexibility is something they really need. And so for him to really give us that breakdown of how the contracts worked, um, obviously going a little bit more in-depth with how everything worked within the organization, as he suggested, was a really interesting and kind of enlightening in many ways, as you're saying, point that he made that this is, okay, a great organization, as we've said, but it's not only a great organization because we say it's great and because they win a lot. It's a great organization because of how they treat their players how they treat their staff, and really the leadership. I mean, Michael, as he'll discuss in the interview, is willing to do just about anything in the ballpark. And to me, that really makes a big deal. His leadership is something that really makes a big deal. So I won't uh, do take too much time on it now, but certainly uh, I think Michael is was a great interview, and he certainly is somebody who we would love to have on the program anytime that he wants to come on. 100%. And so without further ado, we will now present our interview with Ducks President and GM, Michael Pfaff. All right, we are back now. We are joined by probably our highest esteemed guest yet, and we're very proud to have him on, the President of the Long Island Ducks, Michael Pfaff. How is it going today? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. Uh, we appreciate you being on here. And I know that when I reached out to you for comment on the article that uh, me and uh, Will, who runs the ALPB News account on Instagram, you said that you wanted to come on to try and explain a little bit of why some of these higher-name Atlantic League guys, guys that fans of the league last year, uh, may not be returning in 2020. And so when the opportunity arose, I, I had to spring on having you on. So 
we're, we're very pleased to have you on. And I suppose now I'll turn the floor over to you so that way you could kind of give us a general overview of how you may see guys like a, like a Telvin Nash or someone that you probably know more closely, David Washington, why they would maybe make that switch to an American association or another league. Right. Well, I think that, uh, you know, when, when I think about the reasons that players determine what, where they're going to play in the following year, that's really up to each individual player. And I think if you look at 2020 under a microscope, it might be, um, you know, a little too, too myopic. You know, I think that we, we have to look at these things over time and, uh, every year there have been players that have, chosen to play in the American Association, the Atlantic League, um, the Can-Am. Some have had choices, some haven't. And they're really for all different reasons. Um, I, I think that the Atlantic League has proven to be the league of choice for free agents um, that are looking for a place to go, and our eight teams are a place to go, and be seen by Major League Baseball clubs and foreign organizations and have an opportunity to get back. The Atlantic League has had well over a thousand contracts purchased since, since inception. And when you look at why the Atlantic League is the premier choice, there's a, there's a very specific reason that from the beginning it's been able to obtain players, you know, start right at the beginning with Ruben Sierra back in, you know, 2000 with the Ducks. And you say, you know, why do these players come here? And it's really because of the contract status. So that's really important in this. What's the difference between the Atlantic League and other leagues? And in the Atlantic League, these are playing free agents. Players' contracts are from opening day to the end of the season. They're seasonal contracts. The teams have no contractual rights to them outside of their seasons. In other leagues, there are option years. Player rights continue throughout the course of the offseason. They have the ability to move much more freely in the Atlantic League, especially with the relationship the Atlantic League has with Major League Baseball that stipulates how player transactions are to occur. So if you're a player and you're making a decision as to whether to play with an American Association team or Atlantic League team, the choice is very clear if you talk to your agent or players, um, you know, of your strata where you say, you know, what do you guys think? The feedback has consistently been the Atlantic League because of the ease with which you can move in and out of the league. Um, all transactions go through the league office, so teams do not get involved. So every team in the Atlantic League offers the same opportunity. Not everybody says that, and that's important to note. Uh, but the fact that there are no option years, these are free agent contracts, these players are playing free agents. It offers a great showcase with the highest level of competition of independent baseball. Um, you know, that's really important. And that's why we've been the, the premier independent league and able to get such talented players. Now, I will tell you, when the league was formed, another important thing to note is that it wasn't intended to be a league where players returned year after year after year. Mm. As a showcase league, it was modeled a little bit more closely to the Pacific League of the 50s, where, you know, players would come in and out and showcase themselves. Um, but when the league was founded by Frank Bolton and, uh, you know, he was kind of modeling it after that 1950s era Pacific uh, League. So 
it's important to um, look at the no options clause, the playing free agent status as to why. You know, that's why the ALPB is the league of choice. Now, why players decide to play elsewhere after they've played here is much is very similar, I think, to why players decide to play here after they've played in other leagues. Players learn over the course of time what fits best for them and their individual circumstances and situations. Sometimes players want to play closer to home. Sometimes player decide, a player decides, you know what? The writing might be on the wall. I haven't been signed in this league or with this team I'm with. Let me try something new. But each player is unique, has their own reasons, their own rationale, which they're, of course, completely entitled to and we respect. And, you know, but that doesn't mean that the, 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 uh, that doesn't change the opportunity the Atlantic League offers at all. Yeah, of course not. You did hit on something just a moment ago with the MLB partnership. I was just curious if you've ever had that so far. And obviously it's only been around for a little over a year at this point, but have you had a player that said, I want to be in the Atlantic League specifically because of the partnership or say, I'd rather not be because of these kind of rule changes that aren't really the baseball I know or that I'm familiar with. Because I know when speaking to some of the players, when we were writing the article, there was a handful that said when some of these rule changes came in, it really, it kind of soured me on the league a bit. Well, I've had conversations with, we've announced 15 players that have signed with the Ducks this season. And each of them are coming, are returning to the Atlantic League. So 15 out of the 15 have pitched in or played in the Atlantic League previously and are returning. And not one of those 15 has mentioned anything about the MLB rules. Um, now, they might not be as forthcoming with me, who is an employer, but I encourage that kind of discourse. You know, I, I certainly don't discourage it. You know, the feedback is something that has been sought by Major League Baseball and by the Atlantic League. I think that communication is the key. I know that I've been on calls between Major League Baseball and Atlantic League managers and coaches, and sometimes everything that's been communicated doesn't always trickle down into the clubhouses for one reason or another. I know that things get busy and, and uh, you know, people get focused on the, the day at hand, but I think that more thorough communication would lead to, uh, you know, some of those players that spoke to you maybe having a different outlook. Uh, but it hasn't been my experience that players have said that. The players that I've spoken to, especially the pitchers, have found the fact that they can obtain data to be valuable. I believe, and I'm not sure if I'm cutting James off here, but I believe there was a handful of players too that had had, had some issue getting their data. I believe one pitcher in particular from Lancaster. I'm not sure if that's been resolved or not, but do you know if any other player has had that kind of an issue? I haven't heard that, but I would encourage any player that reports to you or anybody that they're having difficulty to contact our league office. And I, I will say that Rick White, the president of the Atlantic League, is an outstanding communicator uh, to clubs, and, and he's very easy to get a hold of. The information is right on the Atlantic League website, uh, but it's rwhite at atlanticleague.com. He'd certainly be more than willing to help any player that was looking uh, to resolve any issue, including uh, retrieval of data. Okay. James, do you have something to do? Uh, you want to chime yeah, in? I yeah, I did. So uh, what I think what you said was really interesting. I think you make a really good point that the Atlantic League has certainly been the premier league. We've talked about it uh, many times in the show, and we couldn't agree with you more on that sentiment. And so 
So uh, my question is, do you think the way that you all treat players uh, has an impact on retention, particularly um, with your organization and some other organizations in the Atlantic League that I've heard from from players that say that they're premier organizations? Do you think that has a, an impact on retaining guys, but also, like you said, attracting talent uh, of people to be there and then get to that next level? Do you think that has a, an impact? Well, I can't speak for other leagues or teams, but I know with our club, we put an awful lot of effort and legwork into making sure that we provide an environment where players can flourish and create a, a, a good atmosphere for players to walk into. And what that means is whether it's housing or transportation or amenities in the ballpark or coaching staff or support staff, clubhouse managers and, and uh, the like, we really work hard on vetting everything and putting everything in place so that players have a turnkey experience when they get to Long Island. They walk in, they pick up their keys for housing, they move right in, everything is furnished, ready to go, and they just have to worry about playing baseball. And we provide them with the best uh, facility that we possibly can, uh, as well as the best coaching staff and uh, you know the best organization and, you know, try to, that, that we can, uh, and, and make sure that, that players get everything that they need within reason, you know, to make themselves, uh, you know, our medical staff is very important in that equation too. I shouldn't leave them out. That's uh, a very big reason that we're very fortunate to have the medical staff we have. It's a big reason that, uh, players have reported good experiences here. They come here and, and many times players are in the Atlantic League because they have to prove that they're healthy. And when you come to a, uh, a team with a medical staff like the one that we have, where we have uh, a specialist for essentially every part of the body and uh, we have a, a surgeon on staff that invented the shoulder surgery he performs. We have uh, the, the team doctor uh, of uh the New York Islanders and the USTA and, uh, you know, very accomplished, uh, doctors and medical staff and physical therapy partners. That's a, that's a big part. You know, people know that they're coming, to, they're going to a place where there are professionals that are, uh, of the strata and of the expertise of what they would see at a major league organization. So, uh, yeah, I think that's important in giving players comfort, uh, to come here when they're coming here for the first time. And it certainly factors in once they've experienced that uh, in their desire to return. Yeah, and, yeah, and having that kind of general staff, I think, also especially helps, like you're saying, those first-time players almost break a little bit of some preconceived notions they may have about playing independent league ball. Because I know I've read numerous articles and just talking to players. That first time they walked in, they didn't really know what they were walking into. They heard stories and whatnot, and then... When you come to a place like Long Island, that's a first-rate organization, a true class act, top to bottom, and you see this high-level staff, you see that they're doing everything right, it definitely does kind of ease them and helps them focus on doing their job, which is, you know, playing the best baseball they can. And one thing... No I, doubt. I, I, yeah. I think that the what you hit on there is important, too. You know, where does that come from? And it starts at the top. And, you know, I mentioned Frank Bolton, who founded the league, um, it really does start there. And, you know, the, the founding, uh, partners, including Steve Califer, the Califer family in Somerset, uh, Joe Klein, who was, uh, GM of the Tigers, uh, the Royals, the Indians. 
he was he was somebody that was our executive director for the first I want to say 16 or 17 years of the league prior to his passing, and you had real major league veteran baseball men that were part of the foundation of this league. You think about Bud Harrelson in Long Island, Sparky Lyle in Somerset, Butch Hobson in Nashua. Um, you know, those are guys that know the game in and out as major league players, coaches, and managers in, in Butch and Bud's case. And um, I know in our organization, when you have, you know, a business person, the ilk of, of a Frank Bolton and a baseball person, you know, of the level of Bud Harrelson, you know, when I got there in 2002, it, it really, you saw it from the top down and um, everybody knew the right way to do things because, you know, we were taught by, um, you know, some really great people. So um, it, it does start at the top. And, you know, from the baseball player perspective, you think about having somebody like a Bud Harrelson as an owner, um, you know, from the beginning, he knows what baseball players, you know, want to okay. see and want to feel like and what it should, what it should look like. And, you know, that, that type of uh, leadership is important to have in place. And I'm just curious about one thing that, which is what's something that people often overlook when they think of a team president or they think of a GM, something that doesn't really come into their mind as a role or an aspect of the job. Well, one thing that I think it's said a lot around campus on Long Island is you may be the high wire act, but you still have to help pitch the tent. And that means, you know, everything is your job. It's a little bit like joining the circus. So, you know, I tarp the field. I help paint the rails. I'll do anything and everything in that ballpark. There's not a job that's beneath me. Um, you know, if I see a, a puddle in the bathroom, I'm, I'm going to, you know, grab a mop from the utility closet and wipe it up. I'm not going to call somebody and point to it. So, um, you know, yes, I, I sign players and interact with, you know, the, the high level sponsors and run the baseball and business operations of the Ducks. But there's not a job that's, that's beneath me, nor should there be. Um, and, and I know that my colleagues in the league, uh, comport themselves the same way, feel the same way, uh, go at their jobs the same way. And, and that's really the thing in minor league baseball whether affiliated or not, um, you know, everybody in my position that's successful handles it the same way. So just, yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, if you think about it, I know there's a lot of, you know, people out there who, who may be trying to break into um, sports management, sports marketing, things like that. And I, I think that's so key is that work ethic and that determination to uh, have success on the little things. And I think that translates into the baseball as well. You have somebody in a leadership role who's willing to do the little things like that. I think that definitely has a huge impact and trickles down throughout the entire organization and how you do business. And you can certainly see that on game day and on, on your on your field play and all that. Well, it's passion too. You know, you have to have a passion for what you do, and uh, you know, you guys have passion, which is why I, I reached out to you. I could tell you were passionate about independent baseball and you had a love for it and you enjoyed it, and that's why you're doing what you're doing, right? And uh, you know, ultimately, it's why I do what I do, and and it's hard to be successful in something if you don't have a passion for it. So it really does start with the passion. A hundred percent. I'm just going to shift gears a little bit now to talk about the obviously ongoing pandemic that's existing, and I'm just wondering how much of a time frame are we on? How many concrete plans are there? Being that those seem to be in very short supply, as I'm sure the Atlantic League has. Uh, contingency on contingency on contingency of plans. 
Well, right now the key is communication and the league has been fantastic about that. Uh, I've been on uh, calls with my colleagues at the league office as well as the teams, uh, club presidents, GMs, constant contact with ownership and the communication has been very thorough. And right now, we're really taking it on a day-by-day basis because the news changes every day and no one has a crystal ball. No one knows exactly what's going to happen in two days, two weeks, two months. Uh, but one thing that I can tell you is that our goal this year is to get started as quickly as possible and to play as many games as we can. So I've heard in some quarters that you know, when MLB announces a date, we'll announce a date or we'll go off MLB's date. I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I think that MLB is one indicator, but the bigger indicator will be when the health experts tell us that we can gather in large groups again. Mm. And if at that time, MLB determines that they need another spring training, the Atlantic League usually has an abbreviated spring training anyway. So I don't know that we would necessarily go to an extended spring training or as long a spring training as MLB would determine they need. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Do we get started a little earlier than them? Potentially, you know, there's, there's a lot of potential scenarios here. Uh, but I have no doubt that we, we do want to get started as quickly as we can. Of course, it has to be safe and we have to have assurance from the healthcare community and experts that it is safe. And then we'll get going. Um, and no one knows what that date is just yet. But uh, we're certainly eager to uh, you know, be past this. We know that this too shall pass, and we are eagerly awaiting it, uh, it being behind us. Yeah. And you guys are, well, not you guys, meaning the Ducks in particular, but the league in general is in a very interesting position, being that they do have this kind of large cluster of teams that are in this initial hotspot area, obviously. The Ducks, Somerset, and then the two Pennsylvania teams as well, all are in that kind of general outbreak now, but then when you also have teams in North Carolina and Texas, regions that haven't had it as bad as, you know, New York, New Jersey has, it definitely becomes a little bit more challenging, at least in my mind, just because you have to factor in all these various regions and how they're handling it right now. And just because New York's bad right now and Texas isn't doesn't mean in two months it's not going to flip. So it, it definitely is something that's interesting and going to be ongoing to watch here. Yeah, no, you, you bring up a good point, and, and that's kind of the dynamic nature of this this pandemic is that you don't know uh, what it's going to look like in certain areas uh, specific to where our teams are. But one thing that, you know, we're keeping close track of is, is how our, our area is doing. Uh, it's interesting, you know, it seems like right now as we sit here today, New York City is obviously the hotbed. And we, I was looking at the, the town that I'm in has 20 cases and there are 17,000, approximately 17,000 residents. So we're under, you know, I think it's a tenth of a percent, uh, yeah. 20 out of 17,000, if my math's right. But, you know, so very low numbers, which is great. I hope that it stays that way. Mm. And, you know, we can get this lifted soon. But if you look at the map of Long Island, where our ballpark is, is essentially right in the middle of the map to the south. So um, we're about 55 miles from New York City, so um, you know, a fairly significant distance away from Manhattan. Yeah. But, um, you know, to your point earlier, I, I hope that uh, it stays the same and doesn't doesn't change as time moves on. Yeah. Hopefully it improves quicker than uh, 
than otherwise because we want baseball back and we need it back. And, oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just curious if uh, the announcement the city of Toronto made yesterday suspending seemingly all mass gatherings until the end of June would have any impact or if, again, that's just that's a Toronto-based solution that doesn't necessarily work for the Atlantic League locations. Well, there was a... Uh, I did see that and then I saw the message that followed it Hmm. Uh, that clarified it was for the city of Toronto for permit issuing. Um, so fares, um, street yeah. fares, you know, anything they were issuing permits for and did not specifically apply to the Toronto Blue Jays or the Maple Leafs or professional sports. Hmm. So they made that distinction. And, uh, you know, again, we just, we just have to wait for, uh, the people in our area to allow large group gatherings. And uh, once they tell us that it's safe and clear, we'll, we'll get moving here. Although, yeah, so Toronto, Toronto doesn't have any jurisdiction in centralized yeah. as far as yeah, yeah, that, That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And obviously then, you know, major professional leagues such as the NBA, the NHL, uh, MLB, they're in a much different position too because they have the luxury of being able to play in front of no fans because of their TV deals. They're able to make that tenable. And obviously in independent leagues and in minor leagues, that's not the same thing as if, and do correct me if I'm wrong, but the vast majority of your revenues generated at the gate. Yeah, no, it's nearly a hundred percent of our revenue is derived from opening the gates and, and welcoming fans. So, uh, we're not, Major League Baseball, where 70%, I think, or 70 to 75% of their revenue comes from TV rights, from broadcast rights. Hmm. Our revenue is almost entirely dependent upon uh, ticket revenue, sponsorship, merchandise, food and beverage sales. So it's it's important that we get back to business, but obviously health comes first, and yeah. people's personal health and, and the health of, of our region is, is more important than anything. So uh, you know, we respect that and, and obviously, um, we're hoping for, for the best here and we'll work hard to, uh, get going as quickly as possible, uh, once we're given the green light. Mm -hmm. And a hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent on that. I, I just think that, uh, so I did have one, one question. So this will lift, um, whatever it is, whether it's May, June, July, whatever the, the period happens and it lifts. Uh, what do you think the impact on your attendance will be? As you talked about, attendance is so vital. Um, do you think people will kind of, obviously it's, it's hard to judge at this point, but how do you, uh, think people will react to having the gates open? Do you think they'll come back and kind of what precautions are you taking? Um, will you take to, you know, make sure everything is a clean and safe environment for the Ducks fans? I think there are two schools of thought. One school of thought is, and, and I think people will be split. And, and what percentage they're split into, I don't know. But my own personal opinion is that people will approach it one of two ways. They will either say, I'm a little skittish because I'm not sure if this virus is, is still something that is contagious and I shouldn't be out in public. That's one camp. The other perspective is people are going stir crazy in their homes and can't wait to get out and get back to their normal lives. So as long as they have the assurance that, you know, things should be uh, safe or relatively safe. They'll be excited more than ever to get out and experience Ducks baseball and Patriots baseball and Skeeters baseball and, and you know, baseball in general. So uh, 
I don't know. I can't, you know, I can't speak for every person, but I think that the majority of people are excited to get out. I mean, I see more runners and bike riders than I've ever seen before. People walking outside, enjoying the outdoors. And I think a lot of that is people are, are a little, you know, uh, desirous of getting out after being inside for so, for so long. And, uh, this is unprecedented. I think that the reaction will be something that'll be interesting to watch. So we don't really have any historical data that can tell us how people are going to react after this confinement or this period of confinement lifts. But I think there are going to be an awful lot of people that are going to be excited to get out and enjoy baseball and have a hot dog and watch our great teams compete on the field. Uh, and, and I'm looking forward to that day. Yeah, I know I sure will be. Once this, once this lifts, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be definitely me and Nick will be running out to every baseball game we can get our hands on. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely there. So you've been very generous with your time. We don't want to take any more from you. We're just going to give you the floor to, you know, summarize anything you want to say or promote any sort of duck event or anything that you have going on personally that you may want people to know about. I appreciate that. I think that, um, you know, you guys talk a lot about uh, the different aspects of independent baseball and we appreciate your, uh, your interest in it. And, uh, I would just implore uh, your listeners that are fans to make sure that they support their local minor league team once the gates do open again, because it will be more important than ever that, uh, you know, we have the support of the community and, and obviously we, we support the community as well. But uh, having fans come back out to the ballpark is going to be supremely important in helping us recover as people that enjoy going out and spending time together, but also in, in supporting these, uh, these ongoing businesses. So, uh, we look forward to seeing everybody back out at the ballpark and, uh, you know, taking part in America's pastime again. Well said. Thank you very much for coming on today. We really do appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Anytime, thank, you guys. Yep. thank you very much. Yep. Thank I appreciate you. it. All right, so that was our interview with Ducks President and GM Michael Pfaff. Again, thank you for coming onto the program. We do really appreciate you coming onto the show, and we really found what you had to say extremely enlightening. And now we're going to jump back into kind of debriefing this. And I want to jump on to one point that you said before we started playing the interview, which was the leadership structure. That was the one thing that I really took away, that this chain of command is very strong there. Yeah. The leadership does start at the top. And with any successful organization, if the guy at the top of the chain is being held accountable and he is holding the people below him accountable, then it's going to run smoothly. There seems to definitely be the respect factor of these guys at the top. They know what they're doing. They've proven that. And that goes down the, down the chain. It just is a quality reign leadership structure. That and also the fact that it just everyone knows that just because you have this job does not mean it disqualifies you from all the other jobs below you. Yeah, absolutely. That was so important. It's so crucial to what is going on within the Ducks organization. He really peek, let us peek behind the curtain a little bit there and see what's going on within the organization and why they're so successful. It's because of things like that. It's because he's willing to do everything. It's because the leadership in place is willing to do anything and everything that they can to make their ball club successful to get their players to the next level it really is truly a sign of professionalism at its best this is a professional organization this is a professional team and obviously michael is a professional guy and it really is juxtaposed 
by some of the other leagues that we talk about. I won't say any names, but it certainly is juxtaposed with the way other things are run. And I think it is refreshing to see that players have this option, um, players of a certain talent uh, have this option to get into the Atlantic League and, and truly make a name for themselves. Also, what I thought was interesting that he talked about was kind of the medical staff and the just the overall way that the organization treats players. That is so valuable. It is so important. If the player is happy, if the player is content, then the player is going to succeed there. More often than not, if they have the proper tools around them, then it really aids players. And we see it time and time again. As he said, Ruben Sierra was one of the first guys to go into the Atlantic League. Big name guy. You can see it over and over again. It's just a really important uh, structure that he's got going on there. And he really does a good job of highlighting how the league is different from other leagues uh, and why it is often considered the best. Exactly. It, it makes it very clear, like you're saying, with that medical structure and that whole support system that's around it, how he said that he wants it to be turnkey so the players can just go in and then focus on playing baseball. And it definitely shows with the success they've had on the field that they take care of their players off the field, that they can focus on primarily doing their main job, which is playing good baseball. Uh, one of the other things I did find extremely interesting was, I think you mentioned it before the interview aired here, uh, the contract status. Now, that's, yep. the, that's the defining thing here, how Atlantic League has no options, but the American Association does. Now, I'm not sure what the Frontier League does, but to see... Oh, no, wait, they do have options, my mistake. Yeah, but they, they do, because those exercise normally around December. Right. So, that, as that is a defining factor... That was something that was extremely interesting to me as well. Now, it was. I'm I'm not really sure how binding those options are. I assume they're binding within the league, but if you're like Matt Latos there, that pitches in New Jersey one year, then goes to Southern Maryland, and then back to New Jersey, how I don't believe that option will stop him from pitching in a different league. So I'm not really sure how big yeah, of an effect I, I, that is. Latos could go back to the, from the Frontier League back to the Atlantic League next year. I'm not sure how that would work. Obviously, that depends on his contract situation. But I think what's really interesting, as you pointed out, is, and it may answer some of the questions that we had going in about the players leaving the Atlantic League. Well, the players are designed to leave the Atlantic League. They don't necessarily want to have the same guys year after year after year because they want it to be, as he said originally, it was developed to be a showcase league. No, I think it's become more than that. I think it's become a viable league where some talented guys play year after year. However, I think it does give the players a lot of flexibility. So it does strengthen the argument that players leave the Atlantic League for a variety of reasons. And while the rules, as we'll probably talk about in a moment, uh, certainly had maybe some impact for some guys because of the way the Atlantic League is designed and the freeness uh, of the and really the availability of the players to make their own choices, have their own agency. Um, it really works to their advantage and move throughout these different leagues. And so they have, because they have that, I think that it shows, it strengthens the argument that Faf made that guys move for various reasons and it's not just uh, the rules that are making guys leave. Uh, but he did say that communication was key. And I think I agree with that as well. You have to communicate down to the players there. Exactly. Yeah. And that was one area where he did touch on where he said, sometimes some things get lost in communication because people get busy. And from that top like league and 
kind of front office level down to the managers who then relate to the players. Things just get lost sometimes. I definitely see that. One of the things I wish I would have asked as a follow-up was, well, what are some ways that you think that could be improved? But I definitely see that as an element to it. I think that the rule changes still, they weigh in more heavily than a lot of the more brass of the Atlantic League want to admit. Mainly because I I know this. I know that there are several players that I've directly talked to. There was guys that we quoted in the article that said this was the defining reason for me. I was not sticking around there. I mean, hell, Matt Latos was very open about it. It's a joke. All these rules are a joke. And he cited that as the reason he left. So I I do agree. There is a variety of reasons. I think anyone saying that it's these players are only leaving because of the rules are way out of touch. But to say that the rules are a minor factor in it, I think may be a little bit misleading. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I think obviously uh, Michael had to had to say what he needed to in order to put the the right message out there for the league and the fans. However, I I do think that the the rules have had an impact. There's no doubt. Maybe not as big of an impact as we once thought, um, as he was able to clarify that a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I think there still is an impact to those rules. Maybe it's communication is the reason, as he pointed out. Hmm. Maybe it's just because these rules are bad, as we pointed out. <laughs> Some of them, anyway. I yeah. think that there's many reasons uh, why that could be the case. And I think it's important that we... He says we don't need to be myopic about it. But this is really the only... It's almost impossible to not be, quote-unquote, myopic because it's we haven't seen too much free agency go on. This is the only year where we've had free agency without with these rules in place and with more coming. Exactly, yeah. So I, I would agree with him in the sense that we do need a larger sample size. But at the same time, when you look at it and you see the names that are leaving, it's still, you know, I think calling it myopic may not be the right choice of words. Right, well, yeah. only because it, it's a small sample size, but yeah. there's some large names that left in that small sample size. And if we're, exactly. we can only base it off a of small sample size because we don't have any further evidence, certainly we may need some more. We may need a few more years. But I think just going off of this free agency alone and what guys have said to you, I think, leads me to believe that it has a, a decent role to play overall. Yeah, I think it, I think if we were to put this in kind of a tier thing, I don't think it's that first tier, which is a primary reason. But I certainly think it's that second tier, that secondary reasoning here. And it's above the third level. I think, obviously, like with the Ducks, they run a high-class organization. So they're not going to see as high of that turnover. I believe really the only real huge name that really jumped ship from them was um, David Washington. So, I mean, certainly a big name, but he's not Telvin Nash. He's not, you know, Rick Teasley. He's not... uh, Right. Dallas Beeler. He's not a lot of these rather large name guys. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it's not exactly the same thing here, you know? Oh, I agree with you 100% on that. And, yeah, it's it's not the same thing. A lot of it might have to do with organizational structures. I mean, the Ducks, obviously, as we saw with the rest of the interview, he's a first-class guy. He thinks really in-depth about both the on-field ramifications and then, obviously, with the coronavirus, he's thinking very logistically and very rationally about the off the field element and how to get guys back into the ballpark. How do we get people back into the ballpark? Uh, when it will, will it be safe? I think he's thinking very reasonably and rationally about these type of issues. So clearly they have, a, as we've said, good leadership in place with him and others. 
And so it's a place that people want to go play. Exactly. <laughs> Just, you know, to put it bluntly, if people want to go play for the Long Island Ducks. That's the truth of it. Um, and it might not be the same around every single Atlantic League organization uh, comparatively. Exactly. I mean, and also I do like how we mentioned all these transactions go through the league office, not through the individual team. All the teams are basically offering the same opportunity. I do want to build on the on what you were just saying there with the with the coronavirus bit. I'm glad to see that he does agree with our uh, general theory of the split population here, where half of them are going to really want to go yeah. out and do something, and the other half are going to be apprehensive. And now, granted, he didn't say half and half. He said, "I don't know the percentages," but and he seemed to imply that he thinks more people are going to want to go out and do things, which mm-hmm. I would I would agree with that. But at the same time, I would caution him to really go all in on it just because i think that especially in the early going now of course this also depends when the when this kind of blows over if it blows over earlier probably won't be as much of an issue as opposed to if it blows over later but i wouldn't expect a large crowd for at least the first month that's yep. just i think a safe assumption to make i think you're going to see crowds of sub 1000 in some areas now i'm not sure if long island's one of those areas although i know they're now the ones that are getting hit really hard with the corona stuff too right or if it's going to be someone else but what i i do know is that you're going to see bad attendance numbers this year the numbers just aren't going to be in your favor simply because of this and there's going to be some people that aren't going to go back out and do the sporting events and go into these large crowds again until there's a vaccine ready, which that could be as soon as a year from now. That could be as late as two or three years from now. Who knows? But it's still, it's it's something that I think is going to be interesting to watch there. And I do like to see that he's planning for that. And for whichever case happens there, it definitely does, again, go back to that leadership that we were saying. That yep. Also, that this seems like all the Atlantic League's on the same page here. I know uh, the Patriots GM, uh, McVeigh, he did a kind of, I think, Facebook Live thing, either the same day as our interview or the day after, and he confirmed what Faf told us, which was, we're not on Major League Baseball's clock. That is one indication. Right. We don't need that same spring training. We don't need that same buildup. We could do it for a week and then jump right into it. Once mm-hmm. we're once we're given the green light, then we we can get going. It's not right, going to be raring to go. Exactly, it'd be about ten days before we're ready to go. So that's something interesting also to watch. Yeah, that's something to watch absolutely. And I think you're you're so right. You hit the nail on the head that what he's saying that you know getting guys back in the ballpark, uh, getting people back in the ballpark on a split level idea there, and where you have a lot of the population staying home, a lot of the population are itching to get out and, and running out. I think you're right. I think this year is going to be a lost year in terms of attendance. Uh, I think you could see some adverse effects economically for teams. Um, hopefully none of them have to fold, but you know, you could see adverse effects happening. So it's important to weigh these things out um, for teams and, and leagues. Can you run at, you know, half your usual, attendance capacity and the team still survive uh is really the the question i think some leagues are going to have to face moving forward but ultimately i do think that what faf said made a lot of sense that people are going to want to come back to and, and go to baseball games and i'm going to want to come back and go to baseball games. oh absolutely all over but i think there are realities that a lot of people uh will be scared by this and rightfully so uh and they should be um, in many regards, because this is not anything to joke about. When, Whenever the CDC 
and the state governments lift these restrictions at least a little bit that I think will give people a lot more hope this can be resolved. Right now, you know, you're talking about August and September deadlines for getting people back into stadiums and things. And, you know, people are saying only August and September, which has been uh, quite interesting uh, to read those comments <laughs> only and uh, only, you know, four months away. Yeah. So we're, we're in an interesting period, uh, certainly. And I think it's important to let things develop and let things play out and not be hasty one way or the other and saying that things shouldn't start uh, at a certain time or things should start at a certain time. I think it's important to kind of see where the facts lead us. Exactly. One way or the other, we're going to have baseball again, and we're going to have independent league baseball again. It's really just a matter of, are we going to have it in 2020 or not? Which every day becomes more and more of a legitimate question. Unfortunately, as that is, I mean, it's it's going to be hard to say in one way or the other until this calms down. But in any case, just kind of summarizing the whole interview, I thought it was a really, a really great one to do. I Like I said, he brought a lot of information to the table and definitely, definitely enlightened us on kind of the behind the scenes, like you were saying a little bit ago, operation that is the Long Island Ducks. And uh, again, I just want to thank him for coming on. We do appreciate the interview. Yep, absolutely. It was great to have him on. And as I said before, be awesome to have him on again at some point as we near uh, the start of either this season uh, or next. Exactly. Michael Pfaff is always welcome on this program. So, And I just want to kind of wrap up this by going, we do apologize for the dropped call in the middle of the, uh, in the, middle of the interview. Uh, that just kind of happened out of nowhere. So you do notice a little bit of an audio switch there. I think I managed to clean it up pretty good, so I don't think I'll be too, too bad, but still apologies for that dropping in the middle of it. Uh, We will now quickly jump to a recap of the Indie Ball March Madness, which came to a conclusion a little bit earlier today, and we were able to crown our champion, but first we got to look back a little bit onto, I believe, the Elite Eight rounds where we wound up leaving off at, so... uh, there was a couple of upsets there, uh, namely the Somerset and the New Jersey one. Somerset eked that one out by one point. I'm just going to kind of go through some of the highlight ones here, and then we'll recap the final four and then give you your winner, because I know there's a lot of people, particularly in Kentucky, that are going to be interested to hear the results of this. So that was one that was interesting. Another one that was fairly close, or one that was surprising to me, was Washington knocked off High Point. I was not really expecting that. The 16th Cinderella dream managed to make it to the Final Four. It did. <laughs> so that was something that was rather shocking to me to see them knock them off. And not, and it wasn't close either. It was 190 to 153. So it was a wow. pretty... Yeah, it was, that's... <laughs> yeah, it, it was sizable there. I mean, it's, it's still, it was very surprising to me to see that. Mm-hmm. Another one that was rather surprising to me was uh, uh, Southern Maryland beating beating Somerset there. I did not expect to see Somerset go down like that, but the Crabs have a tremendous fan base. Uh, that's something we definitely learned here, that there are some teams that we may have been underestimating their fan base here from jumping in. Which, no doubt. One thing I will say that I noticed throughout this, as you got each round in, people picked less on who would win that game if the two teams actually played and more off of... Uh, well, this team's in the same league as my team. This is my team. I prefer this team over that team. They started right. going a little bit more partisan there. So 
it wound up devolving into what I kind of expected it to be. But at the same time, I mean, it, it's just a fun thing to do. So no harm, yep. no foul, really. Um, oh, yeah. I think the largest, uh, well, blowout win was probably the St. Paul and Schaumburg one, where St. Paul put up 317 votes to 139 votes. So a, a solid one there. And that, that is a soundly being beaten. Oh, oh yes, it was. Uh, so then we go now to our final four matchups. Uh, St. Paul versus Washington, and then Florence versus Southern Maryland. And then these, there wasn't one that was really close either way. But what I will say is, both times that Florence really faced it in this uh, tournament, if you would, where they were down and kind of uh, against the wall, they managed to rally late. Like, for Southern Maryland and Florence, for that matchup, Southern Maryland led the way. They led into the dying hour, and then it just totally flipped. And Florence took it 331 to 295. And I will say there was a little bit of an issue when I first put up that poll. I mistakenly put Southern Maryland versus uh, St. Paul, but then I corrected right. that, and I still gave Southern Maryland those votes. That helped, that's how they got to that number. It wouldn't have been fair to not give them the votes at least in my mind, they wound up losing that, which was very surprising to me. I would have thought for certain, for absolute certain, they were going to take that. Mm-hmm. But Absolutely. But the, but the y'alls just rallied a bunch of local businesses, too, and they did that again in the final. But who they played in the final was not as much a surprise. Uh, finally, a one seed beat the Cinderella team. St. Paul wound up <laughs> taking down Washington, in a pretty yeah, unceremonious way, I think is the best way of putting it, uh, right. 317 to 243. So mm-hmm. not a total blowout, but not close either. So right. St. Paul then wound up playing Florence in the final. And this one, it was cl- I want to say it was close, but it wound up not being close. St. Paul had a very early lead. They jumped out of the gate, and they were up by roughly around 100 votes. And then yet again, later that night, Florence does their move where they just rally the troops in such an amazing way where the votes wind up shaking out like this. St. Paul took the Twitter vote, or not the Twitter vote, they took the Instagram vote 121 to 105. So they held a very slim lead going into that Twitter vote. When Mm -hmm. you factor in the Twitter vote numbers, St. Paul walks away with 255 votes to Florence's 352 votes. Overall, an 81-vote difference. And the Florence Yalls, a team that we gave some we gave them some crap for the name at first and then said, we you did? know, that it actually makes sense. We came around to it a little bit later on. They walk away as the inaugural winner of the 2020 Indie Ball Report March Madness Tournament. Oof. Congrats to, Fl- to them. Yeah, congrats to the Florence Yalls. A damn good fan support there. You've managed yeah. to put up the most votes out of any team in any matchup in this round at 457 total votes. Oof. Yeah, that's something else. I mean, they, uh, they're they certainly an impressive bunch uh, of fans. And I think what we, we kind of talked about this a little bit early on right before it was the first show before we when we announced this mm. and we said if the name change if they can get over the name being changed the negative there was some yeah. negative then there's a lot of positive because people in the area are excited 
about the new name, about the team, and it shows really to me that the name change has energized that fan base and it has made them uh clearly there was enough groundwork there to begin with but if anything it has made them more uh more ravenous as a fan base overall oh yeah no it's turned in from a snowball to a snowman base it just kept snowballing itself and growing and growing and growing and they just saw constant growth and like you're saying it it definitely proves that the name change was an overall positive that making this switch to a you know culturally significant name taking this kind of more traditional approach to building their logo and their brand they got the powdered blue look they keep with kind of a lighter red a cream kind of white they go with the script kind of name with a little bit of a kind of negative space logo look to it overall it's very aesthetically pleasing the name draws out a lot of attention and clearly like you're saying the the locals seem to really enjoy it and they seem to really like it and and uh, it just worked out for them i mean congratulations to them they won it uh they my bracket got busted fairly early on by washington of all teams and (laughs) and i did i will say though i did think that florence was going to get there Uh, i thought they were going to get to the final but then i wasn't sure that they were going to be quite able to get all the way home uh i'm kind of surprised that the somerset didn't do as good that and also that Long Island didn't turn out. I would have thought those two teams would have given their reputation, done a little bit better. Um, Agreed on that count. Yeah, I thought they would have done better. However, I think the the thing that kind of kept them from being really uh, kind of getting sh- sh- shot off was, especially with Somerset, they fell to the Blue Crabs, who just on social media have such a great presence uh, and really have the ability to rally that presence at any given moment, as we've seen. Um, and so it makes their... Uh, defeat of Somerset all the more sweet for them, I'm sure. Um, and, uh, you know, the Patriots fans, certainly the community shows up there in Bridgewater all the time uh, for the Patriots. However, I think for Southern Maryland's case, a lot of it is through that really great, again, social media outreach that they've done that has made it a little bit more uh, focused on their social media point of it as opposed to just the sheer numbers of attendance that somerset puts up so i think there's a delineation to be made between the two types of support they have um which is interesting it really does show that i think that there's one that's more of a uh more of a social media kind of maybe a real fan based uh you yeah, know more of a new age approach to it more right a, yeah and then you have somerset that's more of just a a traditional, they show up, they support the team, they definitely rally the troops, the numbers all prove that. And, right. But, I mean, it it shows you how important, though, this kind of social media marketing is, how much pushing this kind of look, get involved in the community and kind of getting your, your support base to rally around it. Even if it's only a fun little online poll, it does show the importance that having this kind of internet reach has um oh no doubt um and then one of the the one other team i'm surprised didn't do as well as i would have thought they would have done was sussex county now i understand they they're a bit of an older fan base too so it shouldn't be that surprising that they're not on instagram and twitter but at the same time it's just such a rabid support base i'm really kind of shocked that they didn't at least at least get past the first round that they went out i know early on and it's very surprising to me there 
And that, that didn't surprise me. See, that, that almost shocked me a little bit because you would think, I mean, how many games have we gone to where it's just crazy? I mean, the atmosphere there can get, it's probably one of the best in the independent league baseball when there's a lot of people in that stadium and it's, it's kind of packed on a, like a, uh, on one of those playoff games, mm-hmm. uh, like the Figueroa game a few years ago to win yeah. the, win the, the championship. championship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just a crazy, crazy fan base up there and really loyal and, uh, bringing their cowbells to every game. So I think that it's, uh, it's interesting that they were not able to pull as much, but I think that's, I think at least in part because the fan support is really driven, I think more, more so on the ground than over the social media, uh, there. Yeah, I agree with that. Then also Sioux sitting doing as well as they did was kind of surprising to me. I wouldn't have thought that as much, but still, in any case, I will conclude the March Madness for this year as we are in april so we need to wrap up fairly early on so that will do it for this year congratulations to the florence y'alls on your championship win y'all have a fancy graphic put up probably an hour after this show goes up i believe that's just about all we had Uh, i know we've been kind of in contact with some more of those uh pecos league and pacific association guys guys from around there so we could spend a little bit of time on that, but I think that's better. That's time better spent next week, as already this has been a, a fairly decent sized episode. So, yep. uh, um, again, congratulations to the Florence Yalls for winning our March Madness tournament. Again, thank you to Michael Pfaff for coming on the show. We do deeply appreciate it. And again, you're always welcome back, as are all of our guests. Next week, we will have Craig Maddox on of Prospect Dugout to discuss kind of tryout camp for the Atlantic League. And all the news there so it'll be a fun interview to have for for you guys next week until then we are just going to plug our stuff and get out of here you can find the podcast about anywhere you can find podcasts so tune in podomatic stitcher spotify uh apple Podcasts, google play and really like i say anywhere you find podcasts you'll find our podcast uh, you can find us on Twitter at IndieBallPod. You can find us on Instagram at IndieBallReport and at IndieBallReport James on our Instagram and our Twitter pages, where is where we had our uh, our March Madness voting. We're going to try and plan something to kind of fill the gap here, some new campaign that will hopefully span the month of uh, April there on those fronts so stay tuned for that and make sure you watch that we also dropped out a couple of other episodes this week we dropped out our interview with tj on wednesday we dropped out our interview with joe tory of the black Sox last saturday and on monday we released a youtube edition of our show you can find that youtube edition on our youtube channel uh indie ball report podcast on youtube and you can find everything we just mentioned on our website along with show notes uh articles videos the whole nine all on our website www.indieballreport.com so with that said do we have anything else left to add before we leave off this episode last thing i'll say is i've said the last couple weeks is thank you to all the healthcare workers out there and hope everyone stays safe uh, during this challenging time and we'll get through it together and we'll be back next week to talk a little bit more uh, independent league baseball with you 100% 100% echo that and also thank you to all the janders and sanitation staff Yeah, you may not get the same recognition but your job is equally if not more important than everybody else's here because without you guys it would just be well a giant germ pit so thanks to all of those guys and until next week or until next time don't forget 
to play ball.